Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that tries not to copy all this material from Wikipedia. My name's Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. Obviously, we don't copy from Wikipedia listeners, but I'll tell you who does. The government's levelling up paper. We talked last week of Boris Johnson's attempts to save himself. Who knows if he's Prime Minister by the time this podcast comes out. But what we're going to try and talk about this week is what the government's actually said it might do. Steve, that the government really said, thought it should try and do something on this levelling up. And lo and behold, after months, years, I think, years, of delays, years of delays, there's a levelling up paper out. Yep. Michael uh, Gove co-wrote it with Andy Haldane. This is the moment I think a lot of people have been waiting for. Um, levelling up was effectively the core of the, uh, the promise that Boris Johnson made to the, uh, to the electorate in 2019 and said, if you vote for us we will do two things we will get brexit done and we will level up and having successfully solved all the issues involved with brexit and there are absolutely absolutely no issues whatsoever with say supply chain problems or customs paperwork or anything of that score no not at all they've then pivoted to their as you say the main domestic agenda of leveling up the country yeah uh, yeah absolutely so this report uh, was uh, really meant to be the, the centerpiece of the uh, of, of the government's you know domestic policy. Delayed, obviously, for, uh, and and to be fair, pandemic, like you can cut a little bit of slack for that. But then, when you actually read the report and you look at it and you go, "Where is it? What what what? It, where is the meat to this? Because it's the red not, meat, in, presumably, indeed, the red meat for the red wall, um, because it's not very good, put bluntly." I, I can't claim to have read the whole report, but can I tell you my favourite sentence in the report? Go for it. The earliest known permanent settlement to be classified as urban was Jericho around ten thousand years ago. I, I was about I was about to uh, to ask was this the uh, reference to timelines uh, where where it compares and contrasts different cities throughout history as whether or not they're urban or not? Well, yes, and actually. The authors of the report must also like this sentence because it appears twice in the report itself in the same paragraph, or at least on the same page anyway. I think it, it tells you a lot. You had Andy Haldane weirdly this week saying that the UK should be more like Renaissance Florence. Seems like an odd... That is a very odd claim to make. When you think, well, we could maybe try and be like any of our... Um, that most any sort of European democracy, yeah, you could look to France for regional government. You could look for Germany, the Netherlands. Ne- you could look at any Denmark. Say you could look at the way that Austria is sort of handling and, and Vienna in particular handling housing. You could look at the Italian government just for giggles, really. Um, for how not to do it. Actually, to be fair, we are getting to the point where we can't really mock the Italians yeah, for their exactly, yeah. chaotic government, to be fair. I'm not necessarily sure the Medicis are the models I would want for enlightened 21st century no, states. No, it's, it's, it's absolutely not. And uh, like, like, it's basically the equivalent of saying, you know what we should really do, use as the basis 
for our, uh, for our for how we govern. Machiavelli's the prince. Jonathan Powell, I suppose, did write the book on it. But he updated it, and it was like a new purpose and for, for the modern age, not just saying... Just, just take, just, just, just take that. Just make sure you don't hire mercenaries, and everything's fine. How Blairite! It's new values in the traditional setting. <laughs> hey. traditional values in the modern setting, I suppose. Really, <laughs> is is the right way around. So I, I just follow a small section of medieval Twitter, and when someone this week said that Boris Johnson runs the country like a medieval court, they quoted an account from Henry II, which was essentially to the effect of, well, that would be actually okay because you've got this event of saying that Henry was energetically involving himself in disputes throughout the country, wanted to know what was going on in every corner of his kingdom, and he would invite the best scholars around the country to his court and engage them in discussions. Wow. Whereas we've got Nadine Doris as culture secretary, who the internet's only 10 years old. God, that depresses me. It does feel like Michael Gove and Andy Haldane have sort of gone into the intellectual... And it's not weeds on this. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of historical contextualising. There is a bit of an issue if you if you, part of your appendix involves a history of big cities throughout history. A material copied from Wikipedia. A significant. This is a significant example of like a student trying to pad out their essay so that it hits the word count. This report should have been impressive. It should have been meaningful. It should have been. Thousands of words with dozens, if not potentially hundreds, of, of policy proposals cutting across all kind of sections of government, uh, all aimed uh, with the with the with the all, all aimed at leveling up towns and cities that aren't London and, and things like that. Instead, what we got was something that has clearly not had the leadership that it actually needs to drive something meaningful through. Now, in this instance, I don't necessarily think that's Michael Gove's fault. Gove, if you give him the ability to do so, will churn out something competent, like we've seen that time and time again. I think Gove and Haldane, in this instance, have just been like, completely hamstrung by the fact that there's no actual notion at the top of government as to what levelling up is and, and what it means. It was just a, a catchphrase and a slogan rather than a policy proposal in 2019. Um, and they've been further, further hamstrung by the fact that Sunak does not want to pay for anything. Well, and that, well that's the key thing, isn't it? And we've said that many, many times in this podcast, yep. that you have this tension with all of the Johnson agenda which needs government spending and, and a Chancellor who won't spend money. In terms of what levelling up means, they've got metrics, and again, Jonathan Portes, Darren Jones, uh, I think the Labour MPs looked at this, and both have come up to with the same argument, which is that the metrics that the levelling up paper uses in terms of what it wants the outcomes to focus on are exactly the same as ones that New Labour was talking about 10 and 20 years ago. And they tend to be things like increasing skill levels, increasing money in research and development, improving transport infrastructure, uh, improving life expectancy, increasing house building. And obviously those are all good things. Yeah. They are all good outcomes to have. And, and Jonathan Portis makes the point that it's okay to have the same set of metrics you want to measure. In a way, that's a good thing, actually. It, consistency. Well, indeed. The problem you've got is there's, as you say, there's no money to achieve any of this stuff. Yeah, uh, absolutely. As I said, a lot of this should have been, these are the metrics that we're trying to measure. This is how they're going to be measured. These are the policies that we want to put in place specifically for each of these metrics to, to allow these places to, 
to, to, to hit them. And then you basically go in, oh, it's, if it's about house building, you, you put in what are the policies that, that you're going to do to, to make that easier. Obviously, like it could like you could easily just take some of the existing policies and bung those in there and make them talking points in, in a number of these areas, but that still doesn't seem to have well, happened. Well, they've done that with the funding, haven't they? Yeah. They've still got the pots of funding. Yeah, the, the, the funding on, on those sorts of levels they have, but like when it comes to like more of the reform areas, because obviously they had the... Um, uh, the, the planning regulation changes and things that they were trying to get through Parliament at one point, yeah, which got dubbed the Developers' Charter by uh, by opponents. That could have been referenced in these sorts of things, but I've not seen it come across uh, in any of the of the debate or the discussion at all. Not even as as a as a case of they're still trying to push this. This is their this is their solution to this problem, but it doesn't actually solve it. So on and so forth. It just doesn't seem to have been mentioned at all. So even from a comms perspective. Like and taking what you're already planning to do, and like shoehorning it in where it makes sense, they haven't done that. So there is an absolute dearth of actual kind of policy narrative in this document, from what I've from what I've seen, and it's kind of farcical to, to be honest. So the, part of the problem, and you've sort of hinted this already, is Boris Johnson is just not focused enough yeah. to coordinate action across different departments, which would, which you'd need to do the things you're talking about. You've got the problem of no money. We had a conversation on the podcast with uh, Luke Don Davis, with Bridget Jones, John Cotton. Um, Bridget talked a lot there about Birmingham's levelling up plan and the fact that but Birmingham's made clear to the government what money it would need to improve its transport infrastructure, improve its house building, so that people have a decent quality of life and that you properly levelled up. Now, the government's not going to do that. What instead the levelling up fund ends up being is just lots of different little pots of money that local councils can bid for. That obviously means that you prioritise shovel-ready projects. It prioritises councils who've got the ability to... Uh, spend lots of time and money bidding for those projects but actually what is needed is just councils to have more money yeah absolutely councils to have more money and probably more freedom in how they spend the money as well well so one of the things the leveling up set paper says is that each area should have a metro mayor style person to have the powers of a metro mayor and drive through these changes how popular are these mayors in practice? Obviously, Birmingham voted against uh, having a mayor in the referendum 10 years ago, got one anyway for the whole of the West Midlands. Bristol's talking about maybe getting rid of its directly elected mayor. So how popular are these positions anyway? The other thing is, you look at Steve Khan in London, he's under massive pressure at the moment to try and balance the transport for London budget. And they're talking about having to make big service cuts because actually the government isn't funding TfL properly. Uh, the government's doing to TfL what it's done to lots of different local authorities, tend to be Labour-run, which is force those Labour councils to make lots of cuts. And then the Conservatives can come in sort of as an insurgent and almost campaign against the decisions their own government have brought in. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the problem at the end of the day. If you Even if... If you're going to try and have everywhere to have a London style mayor to sort these out, fine. But if you're not going to sort, if you're not going to give them, as you say, the freedom. Yeah, and, and, and the other thing that's key when we talk about the mayors is the fact that the mayors currently don't have the same set of powers everywhere. So I think part of the report, uh, one of the things that was mentioned was that I think Manchester and the West Midlands, and I think only those, were being granted additional powers and things. And I would assume it's it's specifically things that um, you know Andy Street and uh, Andy Burnham have um, kind of like been talking to the government about in some form. But 
no one else seemingly so you then have this situation where you're you're picking and choosing and not even on like on a on a basis of like oh an ideological we're giving the tory areas more more powers or anything like that because obviously manchester's not tory um it, it's very much labor through and through and burnham's been an absolute thorn in the side of the government in many many ways but you're giving him more powers and you're giving street more powers but you're not giving um ben hoochin uh, more, more, more powers. You're not giving, you know, a, 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 anyone else any more powers at all, regardless of what their political affiliation is. So you then end up in a situation where you might might very well be be easier for Burnham and Street to hit these targets, but everyone else can't because they don't have the same capacity. Even in in like the the devolution of power sense, it's a very mixed picture and not a clear vision of what needs to happen. It's just. If they ask for it, maybe they get it, but they've got to ask for it first, rather than this being a notion of this is what we want to do. These are the poly- these are the things that we think we think can do it. Let's give mayors the capacity to do it and give them the power to do it. And then if they don't use those powers, that's on them. Well, yeah, and it's interesting. The New Economics Foundation put their uh, report together with a sort of the five things that they wanted to see from leveling up. They said sixty percent of the country needs leveling up. And key was devolution, proper devolution, blowing the localism claxon, if you like, to actually give local communities the powers to sort any of this stuff. Increasing funding to make sure that people have a living wage that takes into account the cost of living crisis. Uh, good jobs in sectors like uh, retail, in the service sector, and restaurants that are already existing. Um, and essentially investing in green jobs and green infrastructure yeah and essentially what it like in order to level up um parts of the country what you also need is an industrial strategy that's that's aimed at, at that as well i mean one of the things that um uh, one of the criticisms that i saw about the report was that that was severely lacking in in this anyway like the government's talked about doing industrial strategy stuff and i think may have even put out some some documents and, and things like that but they've not really amounted to much uh and once again when they had an opportunity to put something down and again it would have massively fit with the theme of the document and the report they've completely failed to 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 include anything in there despite the fact that it's incredibly relevant and incredibly worthwhile uh an incredibly worthwhile area of focus so we are left once again with they didn't do their homework is the best way to describe it (laughs) I suppose we are always going to be cynical about what a conservative government would achieve in this. Yeah. And yeah. was levelling up always doomed to fail? Without funding and a chancellor committed to fund it, I think yes, it probably was. If you had a chancellor that was prepared to fund it um, and you had put some form of leadership and focus on it right from the get-go, so like let's say Sunak happened to... To, to, to be willing to fund it for purely political reasons or, or, or more than likely, but it was willing to fund this uh, and Gove had been from day one, you know, a cabinet member responsible for, for levelling up, giving a very wide brief to, to do what he does and kind of like build out a plan to actually deliver on things. It may very well have happened. Like we'd still find something to critique with it. It probably still wouldn't go far enough, but it would have been somewhat substantial. And basically our critiques would have been it's not good enough, 
but that doesn't mean it's not good, if, if you get what I, I mean. Get, yeah, I, get what mean. I mean, the problem is there is no money. Sunak was never going to put in money. Absolutely. In an alternative universe where the Saj was still Chancellor. Maybe. But well, again, he's still a Thatcher right and a fiscal conservative. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and this is the thing. Johnson breaks the mould of what a, a conservative is. Only Johnson probably gets away with making a, 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 a promise to level up and the sort of expenditure that needs to go with it. But the Conservative Party as a whole doesn't want to make that kind of expenditure. And you can see it right happening right now with the response to like the cost of living crisis, where you know Sunak's um, headline policy is loans, basically. Everybody gets, gets what is it, like... Two for two hundred quid what? off their bill this year, and then everybody has to pay an additional fifty quid or whatever over the next four years to so it gets claimed back. Loans to the energy companies. Yeah, it's absolutely mental. But again, you can you can see it, even though it's a politically <laughs> tricky situation. Something where it, it it again it feeds into leveling up as a, as a, as a notion because an awful lot of the places that are going to be most affected. By the increasing gas bills in in a, in, a, in terms of um, you know it being more problematic, are going to be in the areas of the city that uh, sort of the areas of the country that are poorer, um, and and uh, you know more risk that people get into get into arrears and, and and things like that with their bills. But even on that, even though it's linked and relevant, they're not prepared to even fork out anything or even build a plan because again we're stuck with these prices probably for the next two to three years and you know what we've got a sticking plaster for not even 12 months at its heart this is still in in, in many ways a traditional conservative government despite all of the all of the rhetoric about leveling up they just don't want to spend the money well it's my it's thatcher right i mean you could a Heath government or a Macmillan government actually does fit in with some of the rhetoric that Johnson's had about levelling up and spending money. It's just, I suppose, Macmillan matched the deeds with words with deeds, and I suppose Heath was sort of blown off course, wasn't he? Yeah. But well, I get Heath's a bit of a weird one. Sort of sounded really that really free market, and then you turned and then talked about the inaccessible face of capitalism, and then anyway. Um, uh, so leveling up, bit of a damp squib, and and also all of the metrics are to be achieved by twenty thirty. So to for it to be achieved, we have to re-elect the Conservatives twice. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and the, good luck with that, as they say. Yeah, what three years now, basically into into the Conservatives uh, of this government. Well, it two and a bit, yeah. two and a bit, two and a bit. But like, we're only just getting this out now. Um, again, pandemic, fair, legitimate reasons for, for some delays, but, but not as much as we've had. This is what we've got, and you're basically saying, we'll do this, but we can't even do this now. So which means you had one shot to make your case, to prove that you were worth, that, that you were trustworthy to, to, to Red Wall voters and things like that. And you've probably bungled it, because you're basically saying we're not going to be really be able to do anything on this front until after the next election. So in which case, it's just another promise. And you've promised it previously and not delivered. So why would people believe when you do it like do, do that again? It's like, in my mind, I kind of view it in a similar way as like Labour's commitment to electoral reform. It's always in the manifesto. It's always in there in some form. But it never actually uh, materialises in, 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 in any way. 
You're but, cynical bastard. How, how are you the one that has brought up electoral reform on this podcast? <laughs> That's the first. Um, for me, it reminds me of a conversation I had with a Tory friend of mine, um, and this date six, it's about the big society and oh, wow. sort of talking about obviously that was the big theme of the 2010 election campaign for Cameron and his view was essentially they could find a bunch of projects um a bit almost like I suppose elected mayors police and crown commissioners and sort of say that this is big society in action I can see a situation where the Tories try and go into an election and say look we've tried to move things out of London we've moved the treasury out of London we've set up government offices in Wolverhampton we've set them up in I think Middlesbrough, somewhere in the northeast. Grant Shapps is literally taking votes online right now for where they're going to base the headquarters mm. of like Great British Railways or, or, or something like that. So I suppose there's that there is going to be enough of a symbolic. I, I suppose what the Tories I suppose are going to hope for is there's enough symbolic things that essentially they can in 2024 I assume they can say you asked us to level up, we've done this stuff within another four years, let us finish the job. I think the problem they are going to have politically is that if the next election is about the state of public services and about government spending, that's better territory for Labour than it is for the Conservatives. I think you've also just got the the basic fact that all of those symbolic things are all very well and good, but they don't necessarily have a major impact on people's day-to-day lives. And when you've got issues surrounding cost of living as well as like over the next year to two years minimum, um, you're going to, you need to address that meaningfully in order to be able to make the case that um, you have leveled things up. Because otherwise, people will go, well, you're saying all of these things, but my gas bill is is now three times what it was before, mm-hmm. and like I'm worse off. I can no longer afford, you know, to put money aside every month so that I can go have a holiday with my kids, or or, or whatever it might be. Um, and because really, those are the, the sorts of voters that are most likely to like recoil from the conservatives on this because like whilst whilst a lot of the the failure to um like address these issues most affects that you know people on the on the on the poorer end of society people in poverty or on that on the cusp and, and things like that and they're the most affected by it the ones that actually probably will drive the shift in terms of uh, of, of government are going to be the ones who are comfortable currently but they now notice that they can't have as much money going into their ISA they're just about managing indeed a long clock written hard working families are we missing any I feel like there's a few more what what, what was Miliband's the promise of Britain (laughs) let's talk about the rest of the policy agenda in what was called Operation Red Meat now this was something that happened at the start of the year wasn't it where in one of the bids to try and keep Boris Johnson in Downing Street for another 15 minutes, they were going to bring out a lot of eye-catching policies that would connect with Tory MPs, not the electorate, Steve, Tory MPs, um, so that they wouldn't put in letters of no confidence. That's how you know you're in a really strong position as Prime Minister when you're not even thinking about the electorate anymore. Well, Boris Johnson is thinking about the electorate, but a very... A very small one. A very small one. It adds up to about 270. Um, or to 54. And... A good example, I think, of this kind of policy is Nadine Dorries, who I feel like we've mentioned more on the last two episodes than we have in the previous six years, her plan to abolish the BBC, which feels a bit like uh, a plan which is good on the right-wing culture war stuff, maybe goes down well with a certain brand of Tory MPs, 
but I imagine goes down with voters like, and certainly the Tories core voters, older voters who actually use and watch the BBC, like a bucket of cold sick. Yeah, it's it, like the, the fact that the BBC has become such a kind of like a talking point for the uh, uh, for the for a certain wing of the um, of the the Conservative Party is just amuses me so so much. Especially when everyone knows they've got a blatant anti-Labour, anti-Corbyn right-wing bias. I think you'd say they'd say it's the other way around, though. I mean, they're, they're all woke, I suppose. Yeah, that in, means. In, indeed. Yeah. I mean, but this is this is the thing. Like, there genuinely is a debate to be had about the funding of the BBC. Is the TV license the best way to do it? Like, what 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 should the B, what should the BBC offer in the, in the digital age? How how can it best offer it? All of these different things. Like, if you look at um, like the number of radio stations that are that are put out. Like you have BBC Radio One, BBC Radio One Extra, BBC Radio, like lots of different things, including that, that are very, very similar. Now, sure, you the, the, there's definitely a case for like some of the more obscure things, like BBC Radio Four, never going to draw in the same kind of numbers as say BBC Radio One, but it does a, serves a different audience. It serves a different purpose. Likewise, with some of the like the things that are more aimed at say um, Asian listeners or, or something like that, with the t- sorts of music that they play absolutely fine for those being there that's what a public service broadcaster should be doing um but you can make a very very strong case potentially to go do do we really need to have a pop music bbc station i'm not saying right or wrong on this but there's these are the sorts of questions that you can ask about this sort of stuff and there's a debate to be had about what the bbc funds what it looks like because a lot of what the bbc does right now is it's very similar to what the rest of the commercial radio and commercial tv produces outside of a few kind of niche areas like bbc radio 4 bbc 3 um and uh, bbc 4 you know those sorts of things um where they do a slightly different sort of sort of show um which again doesn't necessarily have mass appeal but it they're still good. They're still interesting, and and they 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 they're shows that wouldn't get connect produced anywhere else. Like only Connect, for instance, the game show that Victoria Corin Mitchell hosts. Like nowhere else is going to produce that other than the BBC. So you have that 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 kind of discussion to be had. But they're not trying to have that discussion. They're just trying to go, how can we defund the BBC? Which in turn just makes them look a bit swivel-eyed on the matter. I think because I think the vast majority of people are just going to go, well. Sure, it would be nice maybe to not have to pay the TV license if you don't watch the BBC, but most people do watch the BBC and they do engage with it in some form. And when you actually break down what's available per month, what you co- what it costs you per month and what you get from the BBC, it's a hell of a lot more valuable and a hell of a lot more better value than Netflix, Amazon, or, or any of the others. Well, indeed. So yeah, there there are there are two issues, isn't there? which are sort of being conveyed here. So one of them is the political coverage. And as David Allen Green and others have, I, I think, argued, there is, for all of Laura Koonsberg and her effectiveness as a journalist and as a political editor, there's been a definite um, trade-off, I think, of sort of access to Downing Street officials in return for writing on Twitter what you are told and presenting that as an accurate summary of events when it might not be the case. That's a perfectly legitimate question. Not just with the BBC, you've got people like, again, 
just to call names out, but Robert Peston seems to use Twitter to air his thoughts on things without thinking them through in a way that I don't think a national journalist with his reach should do. Yeah. There's the second question of streaming. As you say, you've got people like Netflix and Amazon who they can put billions and billions and billions of pounds into whatever miniseries they want to produce. Meanwhile, the BBC has to produce Doctor Who with the money they find down the back of the sofa. Yeah, yeah. That's that, and that, So the, you've got two issues there, none of which are really addressed in whatever is being proposed by the government because no. it's just a culture war thing. Speaking of which, also Operation Red Meat is sending in the Navy to deal with cross ch- um, refugees on migrants on the channel. That that's proper proper red meat. That is also managing to have a, a diplomatic spat with with Ghana and Albania. The government seeming to say that they're going to try and have a migrant processing facility. I think certainly officials told the Times they're going to in, um, have a migrant processing facility in Ghana, uh, which led to a response from the government in Ghana saying we haven't had any conversations. It's not going to happen. And a similar thing with Albania, where. Um, a, a proposal that was put forward that the Albanian government said, well, this is against international law. We're not going to do it. Yeah, and, and this is in, in many ways like a summary of the problem of the Johnson government's approach to um, uh, foreign policy in that there is no approach to foreign policy. It's all set by the domestic agenda. And they're just like, what sounds good for a headline? Well, we want to we want to set up these um, you know processing centres. Well, where are we going to set them up? Well, um, let's they spitball some ideas, and they go, well, obviously we're not going to be able to do that in, anywhere in the EU. Yada yada yada. All of these different places, and they end up with a few kind of talking points, and they go, well, let's just what what probably happens is they just kind of leak, and these are the sorts of places we're considering. You know, not necessarily yet making a commitment either way and saying it's going to happen here, but it gets reported as government planning to open up processing centre in Ghana. And then the Ghanaian government goes, you what? <laughs> you haven't even talked to us about this. Like when any sensible foreign policy goes, we don't mention plans that we might want to do with another government until we've got it finalised, because these things are lengthy processes to get right because why would why would albania or ghana want to do that for us they're not going to do it out even if it was uh, you know legal under international law they're still not going to do it out of the goodness and kindness of their hearts what they're going to want to get gun- they want to get something from it what if we sent a gunboat uh i still don't think that would work very well especially with albania uh, i feel like they might be landlocked <laughs> i wasn't going to talk about foreign policy but just as an aside the um UK government has had a robust line on Ukraine, but in terms of actual stakes in EU diplomacy, the fact, and I think Chris Gray's written some interesting stuff, we might talk about in more depth, the, the fact is EU foreign ministers are meeting to decide lines. Britain is not in the room for those discussions. Yes. It's not really clear what uh, clout we have on our own. You've got Ben Wallace, who, who I think, to be fair, is been very effective in a sort yeah. of Grant Shapps way, just getting on with the job while yeah, the absolutely. kind of palaces burn around him, trying to coordinate action with the foreign, with his counterpart, with his fellow defence ministers in France and Germany, but having to do it sort of, if you were, if we're part of the EU, we're doing it anyway. It's almost having to run sprint to stand still, really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, it, it really is worth actually just taking the time to to, to just highlight like Ben Wallace actually has done a pretty damn good job. 
um, on on this front. Even Keir Starmer's like highlighted that in one of his um, recent uh, letters or articles that got published. He's been pretty good. Like I like. Uh, historians will look quite kindly on him, I feel, um, unless something terrible kind of get, get, uh, emerges and that he's actually been, uh, you know, insulting Putin to his face or something. Um, well, that might raise his standing in history. Rather. Yeah, yeah. to be fair. Uh, but you're absolutely correct that we are basically running to stand still in terms of our, our positioning here. Really, our, the, the only thing that's invo- that keeps us even involved in this at all is NATO. Um, and the fact that we are still like one of the more significant contributors to, to to that. Obviously, the US is the primary one, but when you compare and contrast like Britain's defence commitments to some of the other countries that are actually a part of it, and the attitudes indeed within them, like Germany, for instance, um, who have, as a result of their stupid decision to um, de- decommission all of their their uh, their nuclear reactors and nuclear power, are now reliant on Russian gas. To, to fund their uh, fund their economy in, in effect uh, to fuel their economy, um, you know, uh, Britain is still a big player in in NATO, but NATO is it, it's interesting in that NATO is very specifically a defence um, focused thing rather than a politically focused thing, and those are distinct differences. Um, and so whilst we are, we still have a say and we still have a seat at the table. We are absolutely, our voice is absolutely dampened by the fact that we're not a part of the EU in this. Um, whether or not that would make a difference in this regards, who knows? Um, but uh, but uh, it's definitely not helping. No, I mean, the fact is, when the foreign ministers of the EU 27 meet to decide a common position, Britain is not at the table. Yeah. And we we can try and sort of be at the table or, you know, hold a sign up sort of Steve Bray style, ironically, um, outside the meeting. But well, it, it's the same argument as when Cameron took the Tories out of the European People's Party, isn't it, in the European Parliament? It means you're not in the room with the people who are making the decisions. And one of the laws of politics, isn't it? You need to, decisions are made by those in the room. Yeah, I mean, it is one of those interesting things, and especially in regards to the to the Conservatives over the past what decade, maybe two decades, is that so much? Years. Yeah, so much of their policies, uh, policy in, in many ways, has been we want to leave the leave that room, like 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 just musical reference here at Hamilton. There's a, in, in the musical Hamilton. There's an entire room where um, Aaron Burr goes. I want to be in the room where it happens, like because that is what politics is about. And yet the British um, Conservative Party's position, especially on foreign affairs, has basically been, let's leave that room. We have been able to put crown signs on pint glasses, though. Ah, the benefits of Brexit. Yeah, Um, which is something we should talk about in in more, uh, because we haven't talked about Brexit enough, really. Uh, But yes, so that report came out uh, probably last week when you're listening to this and appears to be a whole list of stuff which, like the crowns on pint, which we could do anyway, or I think even the AUKUS deal, it says, but we could have probably done that in the EU. Yeah. Um, Three ports we could have done. done. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like the fact that they've produced this this report, which basically says these are the benefits of leaving the EU, and now they're talking about bringing in basically a minister for benefits of brexit um so so that they can really uh kind of like focus on delivering those changes um that will be beneficial that we couldn't do before it tells you everything you need to know you weren't doing it before because they didn't exist and you're not going to do them now because they don't 
exist, at least not in a way that's politically palatable, palatable to the electorate. Well, so there's a couple of things, aren't there? One of them is the whole psychodrama of Brexit itself and the way that Brexit ultras who think any form of, of Brexit and how it's re- enacted is betrayal because it just hasn't been impl- influenced, it hasn't been um, implemented properly yeah. in a sort of communistic way. There's also the government just hasn't got its head around how they're going to talk about Brexit at all. They talk about getting Brexit done. Yeah. It really hasn't got done. It's unfinished business. There's going to be more paperwork that is coming down the track over the next year, yeah. which will make it even harder for... And all of this is going to hit at the same time as cost of living go, going up, and Brexit has, has a role in that as well in some areas. It's And they've gone from not even wanting to talk about Brexit at all to um, bringing in a minister to talk about the benefits of Brexit. So the whole... They haven't got a handle on what the strategy is going to be because... I feel like on one hand, they're going to try and say they've got Brexit done. On the other hand, they're presumably going to try and manufacture some sort of Brexit culture war in the forthcoming election about how Keir Starmer is a big Remainer lawyer who would bring us back into the EU and we'd all have to eat hummus with baguettes or which something. Is, which is it's a, silly, a silly thing because all Keir Starmer has, and Labour have to do is say, no, we're not going to do that. Like We're, we're not going to re- rejoin the EU. We're not going to jo- rejoin the, um, the, uh, the free trade area or anything like that. We are where we are. Would we have started here? No, but the uh, British people voted. We're, we want to fix the issues that Britain is facing and we don't want to refight old wars, it, which is what they're trying to do. Well, well, and I mean, this is what Starmer's said, isn't yeah. it? The, the mood music is very much, the conversation has moved on. Yeah. However, Brexit's not working. We need to improve the Brexit deal that we've got. And actually, in practice, that's going to be some form of, I would have thought anyway, single market and customs union alignment. Because that's the only way that, business isn't going to fall over um the the only other policy i've sort of got my list and i think it is worth finishing with because it's quite a powerful one is a sort of a welfare crackdown which again is sort of it's red meat to the tory backbenchers but will have real consequences for people at large so the um speaking of brexit uh, there are 1.2 million job vacancies in this country, which has led Therese Kofi, who I always forget that she's in the cabinet and then she pops up and says something terrible in, in an interview. She said this is a problem and we need to do something about it. Obviously, the reason why we've got 1.2 million vacancies is because we've got a lot of workers who've taken early retirement over the pandemic and sort of reassessed their life situation. Um, good luck for them. I can't wait to take early retirement 43 years time. You've got an increase of people who are students and have gone for qualifications while, you know, Let's go to the Winchester, get a master's, wait for this all to blow over. Yeah. And you've got fewer EU workers because, well, this thing is fairly obvious now, isn't it, listeners? So that's the context. What the government's proposing is to cut universal credit rates for those who are unemployed if they don't look for jobs outside their chosen field after four weeks. Now, at the moment, it's three months, but they want to cut that period to, to four weeks. Which is this is absolutely mental because that means like like it is entirely feasible that I as a digital marketing professional could get laid off. Agencies go down all the time. Like it is a an economic shock happens, I get made redundant. It is something that could could occur. But like under that plan, I would have to start applying for you know jobs that were you know on a McDonald's fry cook, just at general admin jobs, which. I am massively overqualified for and would not get uh, get given because they know I'd be out the door as 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 quickly as I turned up. 
um, rather than focusing on, on actually applying for jobs that were were meaningful for me and would actually lead to me being off the uh, uh, off the dole for, for for the long term. There's no evidence at all that punitive measures work. None at all. The government's nudge unit found. I'm getting most of this from a Paul War um, piece that he did. So they found that if you um, force those who are unemployed to go to job centres, it leads to increasing anxiety, increasing disempowerment, and actually can be counterproductive. So, um, yeah, real toll on people's mental health. And also, uh, there's research from the Trussell Trust and others which finds that increasing benefit sanctions leads to a 20 or 30% increase using food banks. Yeah. So, when on top of the cost of living crisis, it's a very amoral way to get out of a black hole. It doesn't even get you out of a black hole. Is is is, is, is the thing because no. like, like like if if it actually functioned, like let's say actually the evidence was that this this did work, um, and it would get more people back into in, into jobs, then like you can make a case that actually maybe it's worthwhile. It'd still be amoral, um, and there would still almost certainly be better ways to do it. But you could at least say it worked. But this doesn't even work. So you're you're not actually digging. You're not actually climbing out of the hole. You're digging it deeper. Ah, but it might be popular with Tory backbenchers, and that's the only metric that really works. Yeah. Thank you for listening. As we said on last week's show, uh, we will be intermittently doing podcasts in between campaigning in various elections happening so um if you have any questions that you'd like us to try and cover in episodes of the next few weeks we'll try and get some out as and when but we can't promise it'll be a weekly podcast we can try and promise to have some top quality content for our champagners on patreon and if you want to listen to those what do you have to do steve you can head over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne where for a few pounds every month you will gain access to said episodes as well as articles and other bits and pieces that we produce. Our website is notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. James Cram designed the logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram and Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Plucky Good Times. I'm at Paperback Writer. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy plotting.